0: Hey everybody, Kevin Pennell. welcome to People Process Progress Podcast Episode 11, which I am calling Slaying the Invisible Dragon, a History of Public Health in America. This is not an uh, an all-encompassing, every little fact that would take forever. Um, That would be very hard to do. So really what I want to focus on is in the midst of this COVID-19 coronavirus outbreak, um, as of Sunday, March 15th, is give everyone a background. Um, I've heard a lot of quotes from experts or the media talking about, we're not ready, we don't have plans for this, no one knows. And while this strain of the virus, because as viruses do, they change what they are based on you know how they can survive in a given organism, is those quotes are wrong. There's a long history of great and hard work in the United States from public health professionals in partnership with emergency management and public safety and hospitals and healthcare and a whole bunch of other people. And so what I wanted to do for the folks that are listening, and again, if you are listening, thanks again for coming back, is to provide some ground truth from my experience as a public health emergency coordinator hospital preparedness coordinator for a little bit, and then someone that's been in healthcare and public safety for a while. So seeing both worlds with really strong focus on the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC in the United States. They are the premier. They are our go-to. And while the WHO, World Health Organization, is pretty front and center in the news, the CDC for us in America as uh, public health practitioners when I was there is our source, right? They provide funding. um, They provide the guidance. And as we'll go through in this episode, their history is what's helped us build the health and resilience of the United States for decades. So please join me. Please uh, share this episode. I've got some practical tips, some updates. I'm going to focus a little bit on Virginia because that's where I am. But also overall in these national level programs on the history of the CDC hopefully show you they've done this before this is a different kind of thing but they've done this before right all the folks out there um, that I had the pleasure of working with and learning from and partnering with have put tons of work in and I hope this episode reassures some folks give us some great background into the CDC, which is an outstanding organization, and as well as the the works that are done by our local and regional and state folks. So thanks again for listening and subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, all the usual places. Please share this podcast. I really want to share the stories of the folks that I've had a chance to talk to, the histories that I've gone over. Um, because I think they're really beneficial whether someone's deciding to be a corpsman and they want to learn a little bit of the history of it. They want to learn about jujitsu from Andrew Smith or being a strong woman in technology when I talk to my wife or anything else, any of the other archived episodes. So we're on all the platforms, uh, peopleprocessprogress.com. Need to do some updates there. I think I'm going to kind of reformat how we share all the episodes there. And you can follow me on Instagram at Penel, P-A-N-N-E-L-L-K-G. And... Let's get rolling. So who are these folks, these people of public health? Today, local health departments are staffed with physicians. Typically, the director of a health district is a doctor uh, of some sort, some specializing in public health or epidemiology. Um, Some are general medicine or other specialties, but they're physicians. uh, In other states, uh, you might not be a physician if you're the the director, but there's physicians at that health department running clinics, doing things like that. There's epidemiologists, so those are the folks who have that um, often master's in public health or MPH, and they are the disease experts. Their whole focus is, what is this thing? Why is it making someone sick? Do we know, you know the solution? So epidemiologists right now are the boots on the ground, are the operations section folks 100% on COVID-19, right? Them and the doctors and the and the scientists. Um, other folks there, emergency coordinators like I was, or emergency planners, depending on where you are and what you call it. So that job, all the folks in the health district that don't focus on incident management, incident, incident command, that kind of stuff, because they don't need to because they're nurses or epidemiologists or physicians or they're doing their thing, The emergency emergency planner, emergency coordinator's job is make sure everyone knows how to work together doing incident command, that they've had their annual training. They coordinate the annual flu shots. They help coordinate incident management for disease outbreaks, which FYI happen all the time, all over the country, every single day, right? So again, repetition muscle memory for public health happens all the time. Does it get scaled up when there's an outbreak? Absolutely. Is it is it more stressful? Sure, it's just like anything else. Small projects all the time, one big project. Holy smokes! But but that's what happens. So that's largely what the emergency coordinator does. Uh, nurses nurses do a whole gamut of things from disease screening to clinics. You know, from the standard kind of take blood pressures, do that, get them ready for the doctor. Um, refugee screenings. Tuberculosis programs, all the a whole bunch of stuff, public health nurses do tons of work. Uh, administrative staff, right? So health departments, just like other organizations, have administrative staff that work anything from the front desk to patient registration and, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, environmental health, that's another huge component of the public health department. So well inspections, food inspections, uh, uh, outbreaks at restaurants, right? Someone didn't wash their hands, they came to work sick. That happens regularly, it's super gross, but it happens, right? So our environmental health folks help get us through that and help give the guidance. And if you've seen the news, uh, particularly in Virginia and some areas, and you see 10 critical violations, so that typically is from a environmental health inspection of a restaurant and someone didn't meet cleanliness standards or they were, you know, using chemicals over the bowl of eggs or whatever, and there's some stories that I heard that most folks don't want to hear because you won't go out to eat anymore, but... There's some places that are great at cleanliness and some places that are gross with cleanliness. Uh, Another great program, big program, is Women, Infants, and Children or WIC uh, facilitators. They're part of the public health department. So, uh, families that need help with nutrition education, with formula, with diapers and wipes, and and all that, uh, women's health. Take getting the vitamins, prenatal vitamins. Uh, WIC does that and much more. Um, so that's quite a diverse mix of folks that are in public health. But if you think about public health, it is health for the population of a given area, or scale it up for the state, or for the for the you know the federal one. It's proactive stuff and it's reactive stuff. It's a mix, right? So trying to keep people healthy through hand washing, through uh, prenatal vitamins, through reducing infant mortality, and then reactive stuff like now where, okay, now it's an outbreak, now it's a pandemic, now we're gonna set up all these screening sites. So if you listen to that episode I did of Anatomy of a Point of Dispensing, focus there was we're gonna give you meds because you were exposed to anthrax or something like that, but it's the same operation. So when you listen to the news and watch it, and if they're gonna set up a screening location or your testing location for COVID-19, you're going to get there you're going to do some quick paperwork you're going to go to a station you're going to get tested you're going to get paperwork to take with you then you're out and the the goal here is going to be throughput i just heard um on one of the news programs this morning you know one area's focus is going to be six thousand a day that's a lot and that is all about efficiency and safety so when you talk about partnerships between public health public safety healthcare. Um, There should be folks with many different outfits, uniforms, collar devices working together there to make sure that folks have the information they need, they get to the location um, the right way, so they come in the right way if it's drive-through. And you can do, I've done drive-through flu vaccination things before, so you could do drive-through testing. Um, That's going to require, obviously, traffic control, law enforcement, fire department folks on standby for medical or EMS. Uh, working with your dispatch centers, uh, and public health is at the center of that as incident command or part of a unified command and operation. So a lot of incident management. So the incident command system trainings I've talked about on this podcast that I teach, uh, incident management, super comes into play. And a great example, and I'll give them a shout out, is the Central Virginia All-Hazard Incident Management Team, uh, which I'm an alumni of has helped establish a great thing in Virginia that brings hospitals, healthcare, public safety, government all together, because that's what should happen, right? It should be one big team working together. And that's just an example of it. And the background of that, the backbone is the planning p process, the all hazards planning, and it's fantastic. So again, In public health, that emergency coordinator, that emergency planner, if you're listening to this, you should be well versed in this because your job is help get your people through it, just like a project manager, right? My job is to get people through a good process these days, regardless of what kind of project it is. So right now, all over the country, local, state, federal emergency coordination folks in public health are facilitating processes and helping their people get through it as efficiently and as effectively as possible. So kind of like I touched on whether there's a pandemic or not, um, the men and women of public health work really with an abundance of passion. You have to really love this job because sometimes it is super thankless, it's scary. Right, These are the folks that, and I'll touch on this a little bit in the timeline, uh, if you remember the Ebola you know, outbreak, we practiced suiting up because someone was from a country that was suspect, they did have symptoms, all this, so now you are on the front lines, now that activates a whole different thing, so you have to have a passion for that, and to go out in the community and help deliver um, TB treatments to people and medications and all that kind of stuff, and public health does that all the time, and, it, and it's invisible enemies. Right. Like influenza, tuberculosis, COVID-19, pertussis or whooping cough, water contamination, um, keeping babies healthy. So these are kind of intangible things you can't see. And that's why I call it kind of the invisible dragon, because to me, that's more scary than I can see something burning. You know, the, the biggest contrast from my time in public health or healthcare and public safety is you can't see what's trying to kill you in public health. Right. When you're a firefighter, you can see the flames. You can feel the heat. Um, if you're in a city like when I worked in Richmond, I could see blood on an injury or the police presence you know, with guns drawn or standing there doing security. So I know, hey, that's not safe because there's a lot of police making a perimeter. Hey, that's blood. I should put pressure and do this or that. In um, public health, You know, you work hard to prepare everybody and get ready, but you can't see it, right? You can't fix this problem with water. You can't fix it with handcuffs. You can't fix it with bandages. It's infectious diseases, right? So that, I think, leads to hysteria, to rumors, to a lot of the stuff that we've seen in the media, the politicizing of whatever. And that's another big component. So when you're doing good incident management for uh, a pandemic or an outbreak, Public information management is huge, establishing that joint information system, making sure you have a joint information center so that you have coordinated messaging to the public from the public. If you have a hotline to answer questions and it is, you know, the the, the hotline gets to the experts, right? And the the information gets to people in all different mediums. And as part of uh, annual planning, as some of the programs, you actually have to have, um, you know, material translated to the most commonly spoken languages, whether it's in print, whether it's, uh, electronic media. And so that's part of all this planning that I'll, again, we'll go through this history, part of, part of the history of developing that is to prepare for exactly what's happening right now. So while it's scary, yes, again, you know, a lot of this is built in. And so for, for the folks, you know, in public health out there, Thanks for keeping your plans up to date for doing those annual exercises, those checklists for making sure that your people are prepared and ready to respond. Um, And, you know, so how did we get this far? How did we get here? Because I think we're actually in a really good place. Um, I know we're in a good place. It's just scary and there's a lot going on. So let's learn a bit about the CDC that we've heard from quite a bit on the news, right? And so right now, the CDC is the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention but in 1946, when it was created, it was called the Communicable Disease Center, right? And it was created in Atlanta by Dr. Joseph Moonton um, to address malaria in the Deep South. So you don't think about that a lot because, right, they worked hard, not malaria in the South, right? Or it's very rare. Um, malaria you of in other countries, but in the 40s, um, it was actually pretty bad, and so Dr. Moten, who's you know, a pioneer and a great leader in public health, uh, helped stand up the initial CDC, the Communicable Disease Center, and that was in 1946, and by 1948, the U.S. was declared malaria-free, right? So just like COVID-19, just like H1N1, just like other stuff we'll talk about, someone in public health said, hey, there's a problem, hey, let's get people together, hey, let's address it head on, let's focus on it, and then they knocked it out which is pretty awesome. And then in 48 from doing such a great job with malaria, the CDC actually expanded to include things like typhus, plague, rabies, and other diseases, uh, or control measures like insecticides. So they, their scope started to expand more to what it is now, which it's, you know, it's, it's, it's huge. And again, this timeline is from the CDC's website, their history. So this, this is, you know, probably a a 20th of what's on there. And I would encourage everyone to go look at it because again, these are the folks that help build and help get us. You know, there's a reason that the U.S. is not as overrun with disease as other countries, and it's it's because of these folks and the and the local state and you know uh, public health folks. So, in the early 50s, in 1951, the epidemic uh, epidemic sorry intelligence service or EIS uh, was established. So these are those boots on the ground epidemiologists. Early on, right in the 50s disease investigators whose whole focus, whole expertise is, hey, there's some sickness going on here. Let's get there on the ground. And to equate this to a movie reference, um, Contagion, right, which is being streamed like crazy now, uh, which is a great movie to show response, how disease spread. I actually would recommend folks watch it. Uh, It's a little scary, but it does have fantastic uh, information. It's, It's pretty accurate to a real life outbreak. Um, but these are the folks that you see in the movie that are sent out to go get samples and, and interview people. Unfortunately, some of them get sick, right? That, again, is part of the scariness of it is you you have to go get in front of people that are sick to investigate this. And so the EIS folks are Epidemic Intelligence Service folks doing, uh, air quote, shoe leather epidemiology. And that's their symbol is a, a shoe, the bottom of a shoe with the leather worn out on um, the ball of the foot. Uh, is is their symbol. So they really helped, you know, really develop a lot of the -the on-the-ground screening techniques. And and again, this was in 1951. So since then, they've come such a long way. Um, Check out the EIS website on the CDC. You can Google CDC EIS, and you'll see a fantastic uh, infogram or timeline of all the diseases they've had a hand in slowing or stopping Um, or curing even, and it's, it's, it's the big ones, right? If you think of big, scary ones, they've been involved with it. So again, institutional knowledge passed on now, right? This process of developing an agency, getting better and better, expanding, saying, Hey, we need experts that just focus on this. The CDC is all about it. Uh, in 1960, tuberculosis, tuberculosis rather has come under the purview of the CDC and and tuberculosis is a bacterial, uh, a bacteria that attacks the lungs and it's spread through close contact. And. So, you know, which like many things are are, are spread through close close contact. Uh, TB, pretty pretty deadly, pretty bad. Not prevalent as much in the United States, but certainly happens. Uh, Other countries actually get the vaccine because so there's so much of it. Um, We get if folks have ever had the PPD test, you get a little um, test injection under your skin. Look for the dots to see if you have it or not. Um, But we actually had an outbreak where I worked in Virginia and uh, or tried to prevent rather, um, but had exposure there and ended up and this speaks to that that shoe leather that getting out there to the community ended up doing screening for hundreds of folks in the back of a big box store uh, because someone there had active TB and, and was exposed. So just like COVID-19, folks that are sick should not be near folks that are not sick. Right. And in this case, they were. Uh, and in the 60s, um, certainly we didn't have the awareness, the ability to get the word out. Um, the CDC, as it got, gained more prevalence and reputation, started taking on more disease uh, investigation and ownership of prevention measures. And so in, in 1960, TB ended up one of those. Uh, in 69, The first containment lab or biological containment lab was established by the CDC. So these are those, if you see the movies, and again, because most people can, if you don't already know what that is, uh, for either holding samples or testing samples, those where they show people go through kind of the doorway and the air goes, and they're suited up and then they get in the room. But even in the room, there's this glass box with gloves and you're working, you know, and I equate it to a biological bomb suit right? So if you think about it, if you've seen a military movie with an explosive ordnance ordnance technician or ED tech with that big, heavy green suit and the giant helmet and they're, you know, cutting wires and they're trying to diffuse bombs. Uh, if you've seen the hurt locker that that suits in there quite a bit. It's like that, but for biological deadly, biological things like the most deadly things on the planet, um, rice and plague, you know, just horrible things. Uh, and, If you get a nick in the suit, though, and you're exposed or you get exposed, you know, in one of your mucous membranes, then that's that's the deadly, you know, it's not really a game, but I I guess game you play when you're working to try and solve, resolve um, some of the most deadly diseases on the planet. And so in 1969, that's quite some time ago, uh, the CDC stood up that containment, biological containment lab. And so they've been able to isolate uh, samples and test them and try and find cures and find cures. And so that's pretty, pretty astounding, pretty groundbreaking. Um, the next year, the national communicable disease center is renamed to the center for disease control. So the national communicable disease center was the place that the original CDC name communicable disease, um, center. Uh, Was renamed so that's when it becomes center for disease control that that most folks know about it now And and the full name is center for disease control and prevention uh, But most folks know it as the cdc. So a little name change there. So again part of the process is branding, right? So um, You know, it's not just communicable disease center. It's now just disease control So and and their scope had expanded so much from malaria uh, that it includes much more now in 76 uh, and Fort, Dick, Fort Dix, New Jersey, swine flu, right? So swine flu we've heard of, right? H1N1 and conclu- concludes that a, a pandemic's on the way. And this is going to sound a little familiar. So a national immunization program's launched. No epidemic occurs. Before the immunization campaign is terminated, several people contract Guillain-Barre syndrome. So the Guillain-Barre part is where it affects your muscles and it's a rare disorder. Um, where your immune system damages your nerves and you get weakness and sometimes paralysis. So sometimes, even with annual flu vaccines, folks get nervous that they're going to have that reaction to vaccines. In this, in this case, um, as they were vaccinating for this flu, some folks did uh, fall prey to that. Uh, but since then, we've really made the vaccination a lot better, a lot safer, and it's extremely rare. But if you think about it, in 1976, they said, hey, we see this coming out. There's going to be a, uh, an outbreak or an epidemic but they got ahead of it, and, and now with COVID-19, um, they're working on a vaccine, and as we'll touch on in a little bit, or, or even just now, vaccines can't happen overnight, right? You got to look at the, the disease, the virus, whatever it is, um, figure it out, make the vaccine, and I'm, I'm obviously not a scientist, or I'd explain more scientifically how that happens, but it takes time. Like any good solution, um, even the annual flu vaccines, there's no 100% vaccination, but You know, 20, 30, 40% is better than 0%, so I'll be interested to see what the efficacy or or what the percentage of protection uh, from the COVID-19 immunization turns out to be. So we've got our epidemic investigative service stood up. We're already proactive in epidemic, you know, prevention or termination. Um, And then in the early 80s, another huge impact to public health, um, the first case of AIDS or acquired immunodeficiency syndrome was reported in the CDC's publication, the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly, Weekly Report, MMWR. And AIDS is caused by human immunodeficiency virus. And if you recall in the early days, it was a mystery of what HIV or AIDS was. And then initially it was thought to be a gay man's disease and fortunately through science and, and again, rumor control and dispelling myths, it was found out, you know, that is not the case. Um, certainly there was prevalence there. But the CDC was at the front of finding out more about it, stood up the first national AIDS hotline as more cases became reported, right? So that information management, this disease, we're seeing symptoms, we don't know what it is from all these different physicians and, and doctors' offices and hospitals all over the country, so they stood up a hotline. And that's something that happens pretty often as well. So uh, I mentioned that tuberculosis exposure, you know, is when the public hears about that, particularly at a retail location or, or now COVID-19 anywhere, It's always good to stand up a hotline with either recorded standard information um, or, you know, in some initial you could even have recorded screening uh, things. So, hey, do you have these things? If you don't, you're good. If you do hit this number and keep going or if you have the staff, which, again, this is resource intensive and to get it landlines or virtual numbers or however you set it up, you got to have people on the end of those that also have either talking sheets or are knowledgeable themselves in an outbreak, it's hard to reserve your folks that are experts to sit there versus being out there uh, doing the investigation. But early in the 80s, uh, the CDC set up that hotline and then they also hosted the first global conference on AIDS. So, you know, well at the forefront very early, they got together with folks from all over the world and said, hey, we need to address this uh, very early. And so I think that's a pretty awesome proactive thing. So one thing I heard on another podcast from another expert, who, who certainly is an expert, um, but I think you know it's easy, and I'm sure I've done it here, you misspeak on your podcast, you're in a thought stream and you miss a point, was a statement by a, a public health physician that, that said, we don't have stockpiles, we haven't... Um, you know, prepped for something like COVID-19. And I immediately thought that is absolutely not true. And this is why um, in 1999, the the National Pharmaceutical Stockpile, it's now the Strategic National Stockpile was created, right? And so this is a huge cache of medicines, vaccinations, other medical supplies. So it applies to, uh, and there's a whole inventory of this that public health folks that asked had access to that I had that I used in my plans that we could call in and coordinate at airports, a whole huge logistical plans that there already exist They've been around since 99. So, you know, medications like general things like, um, morphine you know for traumas or or stuff like that vaccinations for influenza and other diseases and in the future probably COVID-19 for medical supplies like tourniquets and IV bags and and backboards I mean anything there's a whole national disaster management system for response um, but the strategic national stockpile does exist so yes to everybody listening yes we do have stockpiles We do have stockpiles. And with COVID-19, with influenza, the the thing with a lot of diseases, if you look, there's a lot of comparison charts too, right? Where folks are saying, how does COVID-19 compare to SARS? How does it compare to H1N1 or seasonal flu or whatever else? There are super common threads that are called influenza-like illness or ILI, right? That you'll see that that almost all of them share at least two to three of the same symptoms, right? Some all have fever, some have chills, some have sore throat, cough, runny nose, right? Influenza like illness. And that's part of the problem with this is it looks very similar until you can get the test. And that's where we're, we're short now, but imagine if someone said, Hey, prepare. And then you have to try and game out every variation of every disease or every, you know, bacteria or whatever that could happen. It's impossible. So, With those ILI or influenza-like illnesses, a lot of this cash or stockpile can help with treating the symptoms, right? While we figure out the test to actually create the vaccination or the treatment or get you antivirals, if that will work, right? Like Tamiflu is a big one that some people have made a run on, uh, which isn't cool because that should be reserved for the critically ill folks. Uh, And I'll throw this PSA out there. If you have a cold, a viral cold, right? And it's not COVID-19. You're just a cold. You don't need antibiotics, right? Even if you have COVID-19, unless you get an infection, you don't need antibiotics, right? You, you fight the virus, you make yourself comfortable with your cough and cold medicine, with your NyQuil, with your tissues, with your hand washing, with all that kind of stuff. But antibiotics don't kill the cold. So that's one thing to think about. And and that's a thing as an emergency coordinator or planner or someone doing logistics is having to stockpile antibiotics in, in your local pharmacy because folks a lot of times these days go to the doctor to get antibiotics and they may not have an infection and sometimes it helps and sometimes it doesn't, but usually you can ride it out unless you end up with a sinus infection or you actually have strep or something like that and you don't need the antibiotics. But, you know, as a nation in 1999, not crazy long ago, um, but we developed this whole strategic national stockpile, which I imagine is right now pre prepped for deployment because as folks set up these screening centers, testing centers, some localities in areas that, that aren't as prepared either through, you know, lack of planning or they don't have the resources are going to need help from the federal government to help stand up a location for folks to drive through, to do all that screening. I talked about some areas may just need some stuff or nothing because they're super squared away in their state is. Who knows, but the strategic national stockpile stands by ready, uh, right now and it has and it does every single day and there's annual exercises on how do we get all these big containers onto pallets onto a plane to these different airports to then unpack them and this is stuff that's exercised all the time if not verbally actually in practice um, so 99 then we're going to jump to 2001 right Nine eleven. 11 CDC was huge in coordinating that you know those anthrax cases the inhalation anthrax and anthrax is one of those pie in the sky things that if there was a cloud of anthrax that hit a locality that i've mentioned here before how do we in 48 hours get a 10 day supply of antibiotics to over you know x number for me it was 300 plus thousand and that grew every year residents of where i was um that's the same mimicked all over the country so anthrax right those cases the cdc was a huge player in that and that was again another kind of domestic terrorism focused you know, public uh, health issue and public information management issue, right? Uh, The scare, white powder scare, and the white powder screening for particularly fire departments and hazardous materials teams at that time was just off the charts in public health. Um, As you imagine, you're on call at a station and you start getting calls for white powder, and of course, you know, the anthrax came in a powder format. The likelihood that anthrax was being mailed around the country was extremely low in mass, right? Right. But because it did happen, but the fact if it was going to show up everywhere was, is pretty low because access to that and the ability to make it. The good thing about biological diseases or weapons is they're very hard to make. They're very hard to keep, um, I guess, sustainable to deploy them. And our intelligence services, our public health, our military know the places where that can happen. So it's easier to stop than say, you know, a, a suicide vest or something like that. And so, with anthrax, though, it caused crazy scares um, and you can't treat it as if it's nothing, right? There's white powder. We know anthrax was mailed to some folks. We know they got sick. We know some people died. And so as a you know public safety or public health and locality, you got to respond. So that super taxed the system um, again many lessons learned from that that are being applied right now uh, by everybody, including more proactivity between public health and public safety. And I'll say I'm super blessed to have been part of that as well, where I was and have great partners. So that continues today. Um, Following 9-11 and some of the disjointed coordination there and with anthrax and some other things in 2002, the public health emergency preparedness cooperative agreement or FEP uh, was established, right? And that was really to help, Uh, Health departments prepare for chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear, and explosive, or CBERNY, if you're out there and folks know that acronym, Um, incidents or events. That is the funding stream that paid for my position and a few other, and I'm going to do a breakdown of that program uh, here a little bit later. But that was a huge step in 2002 to establishing the framework for all the people that right now are planning the response for COVID-19 that are responding, that are investigating, that are screening people, that are setting up clinics, that are setting up screening events. Um, that program was established in 2002. So again, in the media, some experts that want to be edgy but not accurate are saying we we've never done anything for this. We're not ready. We haven't practiced this. That's factually wrong, right? This has been we've been practicing this for a long time. So that should help, I hope, the listener. Um, I know it helps me, but I have a different vantage point because I used to do this. Uh, but I will say, and again, all this information is on the CDC's website, and I'll have the links in the, in the show notes. Um, there's been a focus on this stuff for quite some time. The issue is diseases change, viruses change, and then we have to adapt with it. But behind that, there's a lot of people and a lot of supplies that have been practicing this and have set up um, programs and organizations for quite some time. So... A few years after that in 2009, and this is when I get into public health, and I'd been in healthcare, uh, if you recall, when I was a corpsman, so I had hands-on critical care folks, all that kind of stuff, knew of isolation you know uh, diseases or infections that we would have to use isolation carts and get all masked up to take care of of patients so i was familiar with that aspect of it not as much the overall outbreak and response so in 2009 the h1n1 uh, pandemic uh, an outbreak uh, and response was going on that was everywhere that was huge right similar to covid 19 there was no vaccine in 2009 when cases started rising in the u.s and around the world Um, but by the end of uh, 2009 rather uh, there was a vaccine. So again, there's hope and they, there are experts right now, no doubt working round the clock to get a vaccine for COVID-19 just like they did in 2009 for H1N1 where we ended up giving thousands and thousands. I want to say it was in the 30000s H1N1 vaccinations right over the course of about a year between '09 and 2010, including to government, because you got to have continuity of government. So think about your audience. Here's the stats from H1N1, right? And this is, you know, part of that comparing the past's bad with the present's bad and all that kind of stuff is in the United States, there were 12,000 deaths from H1N1, pretty crappy, mostly focused on children and elderly were the the most impacted, right? Those were were the most vulnerable. Um, There were antivirals for treatment, um, but most people recovered without complications, right? I'll say that again. Most recovered without complications. Most people now with COVID-19 get sick, feel horrible and get better, right? And we'll get into this. The high risk folks are folks that have health issues that have lowered immune systems. Same thing with H1N1 back then. Unfortunately with H1N1 though, children were very susceptible to that, uh, with COVID-19 right now, from what we know, cause again, viruses change. Could it change? Sure. But right now it's it's largely older folks with health issues, underlying issues uh, or other folks that happen to get it that have health issues. So the key is the framework of your health uh, dictates kind of what happens. So in 2009, H1N1 pandemic and developing a vaccine and getting out there and and almost all of the things you see now in the news other than it's a, I do feel like it's an election year. You know, people are using it and social media is even more prevalent now than it was in 2009. Very, very similar. This new strain, we don't have a vaccine. Panic, panic, panic. Manage information. Okay, let's get this out there. Let's do mass vaccination clinics constantly. There were weekly travel mass vaccination clinics all throughout the locality. I was in the state, in Virginia, all over the country, everywhere, really. And part of that education experience and the great work that my colleagues and I did locally, regionally, throughout the state... Um, afford us the opportunity to be invited to health and human services up in the, their headquarters up in DC, along with colleagues from the state of Minnesota to speak to the, the abilities of local health departments, right? So a couple years, and I think 11 or twenty eleven or 2012 myself, uh, and a friend of mine, and, and he was a battalion chief then, um, who was the emergency management, uh, or, or represented the public safety and first responders from the locality I was in went up there with the director of our program and really spoke to the federal, you know, leadership from, and there was CDC, Health and Human Services, a whole bunch of other three-letter agencies to really let them know, like we, uh, you know, and we focused on a different disease uh, that's a little more scary, but to let them know, like we practice this and we've actually done this a lot, right? So to alleviate fear, and that really speaks to, so in the same government system and you know, locals, its own thing, states, its own thing, federals its own thing, but there are connectors in funding or dotted lines or this and that and all one team in America. Right. But that really opened my eyes to agencies that just wanted their own stuff or wanted to do their own thing. And then fortunately through great discussions, you know, realizing collaboration just like now. Right. And and we see that going really well with COVID-19, I think. So, You know, that was a great exercise and really spoke to our ability at at the local level to say, you know what, we all the time do this. And here's some numbers like, you know, giving 30,000 vaccinations over the course of however many months we coordinated that. Right. Yep. We got some money. We got the supplies that came through federal channels, but all the coordination, just like every other incident, disaster. Anything else starts and ends locally. And while I was funded by the state and others were funded by these federal grants, we were essentially local folks, right? That's who we worked with. That's how we got this done. And that's how we're going to get it done now with COVID-19. A few years later, 2014, Ebola, right? Ebola virus disease, big outbreaks in Africa, people traveling. That one is scary right that one for sure is scary so case reporting increased the cdc stood up their emergency operations center um, and they helped coordinate national preparedness and response certainly they had huge teams going over there to the to the affected areas in africa and those were significant scary numbers and ebola is to me one of the scariest diseases we could work on Um, here at home we increased screening at airports that sounds familiar right with what's going on now we, we track data regularly weekly up there's daily updates but weekly reports all that kind of stuff um, of you know where is it any reports in the state have we moved patients uh, and fear management for sure so that again that public information management that joint information system that reality and managing not only fear for the public but for our partners right for public health being the voice of reason and guidance with public safety and local government and state government to know, okay, let's, let's get this template of screening in place. Are they from one of these affected areas? If no, that helps eliminate tons of people, right? That call in and say they're sick to 911 or show up on a plane and they're sick because they actually ate something bad and wherever they came from, not because they were from, you know, a country. And so one, one big lesson learned there, particularly in 2014, while we were screening folks with Ebola and getting the 2am calls of, Oh, this person's here and that we think it's Ebola. And we're like, where are they from? And they said, Oh, Venezuela. And you're like, no, that's not really one of the countries in Africa that's primary. But if you're on the ground, this person's sick, you know, there could be someone from somewhere and they have the same symptoms. Then, you know, in the heat of the moment, it, it's super easy to not remember the exact checklist. So get your checklists, shore them up, do training between public health and public safety and local government and hospitals and healthcare and make sure everybody's on the same page because it will help reduce stress for everybody. It will make the system more efficient. It will make everybody safer. Um, and that's one thing, uh, one of the great things that we did through in 2014 through screening folks, screening folks with Ebola and preparing locally. And if you're a local health department, you need to run through a, you know, COVID-19 for now. Um, what if someone does show up and they're super sick? Um, do you have a cart with isolation stuff? Right, just like hospitals do. There's no reason public health couldn't now. If you don't already have one, just like in my decentralizing Ebola and charters podcast I did uh, last year, my thoughts from the road. If you don't already have supplies now, they're going to cost more, take longer, all that stuff. Right. So still work to get them, and then for sure, don't stock up so others can't have it. But Make sure you have that stuff on hand and you're doing that good inventory so you don't have expired gowns and masks and all those kind of things, but you're regularly refreshing your inventory whether there is an outbreak or not. That should be happening. Gonna take us up to 2016 with this timeline uh with Zika virus, right? So this is the one that was really mosquito focused, which is interesting. So 2016, Zika, where'd we start with the CDC? Malaria, mosquitoes. Mosquitoes, man, they're wicked. So CDC activated their emergency operations center. Right, focus controlling mosquito populations. They have some experience with this for sure. Um, they shut down malaria right in the south. They helped very much so shut down and greatly reduce Zika exposure in the United States, particularly in the south, right where it's hot, standing water, mosquitoes. So there's a public health tip as well in addition to the number one tip of wash your hands. Is don't leave standing water around your house. Mosquitoes love it. That's where they lay their eggs. That's how they'll, you know, hatch, go bite something with a disease, then come bite you and get you sick. So that's what was happening with Zika. That's the simple breakdown of it. Um, Zika though, mosquitoes primarily, but also through sex, blood transfusions and, and pregnant mothers to their fetus. So that was a big concern. That's what you saw in the news, right? Was the, the sick babies and with the microcephaly. So that was, you know, a birth defect that affects the brain. Uh, so Zika, not good. But you know the CDC was on top of it, help preventing mosquitoes. So again, not just what makes someone sick, um, you know, what's the virus or what's the disease in this case a virus, but how do we stop people getting it right? So that's a trend in healthcare and public health is let's not just wait till we get something. Let's ahead of time, be healthier. Let's ahead of time um, use mosquito preventions. So we had briefings on the travel of where mosquitoes were during that time. Like where do they live now? We, you know, kept pushing out again, use that, um, off spray or whatever brand, uh, of, you know, mosquito repellent. And, and so that's a huge thing. Empty the water. If you have empty pots sitting out and it rained, don't leave them out there in the summer. Cause it's just going to gather mosquitoes. So that's a very quick history with my two cents here and there of the CDC. So, Hopefully, as you can hear, and again, that's scratching the surface on the, on the entire history. So check out CDC's website and their history. You can do CDC history. It'll come right up on, on Google or whatever browser you want to use. Now I want to talk about the progress of two programs in particular. The FEP or Public Health Emergency Preparedness Program, and the HPP program, or Hospital Preparedness Program. First, we'll start with FEP. And these are the the two big ones that are helping public health and its partners get ready, and hospitals and healthcare and all their partners get ready, which there's tons of crossover. So for FEP, all 50 states have funding available to them, right? And so what do they fund? Epidemiologists, laboratorians. I don't think I've really used that term at all. This is from the CDC site. Um, Educators, health professionals, uh, CDC staff. So there's some CDC staff that are funded by this as well, and they help. Uh, local health departments or state health departments make sure they're going through their plans. Make sure that they've checked the boxes practically. On did you consider this, this, and this in your plans? Have you exercised it, etc.? And then other positions: IT admin, emergency planners. Right. So federally funded, all 50 states have this money available. It's broken out a little differently. It's it's more is given to areas with more people, with higher risks. Less and less areas just makes sense, right? So what do these focus on largely? Uh. The top five focuses of funding is public health surveillance and epidemiological investigation, right? So since 2002, a whole bunch of money has gone toward doing what we're doing now for COVID-19 and it's been happening. So again, I keep reiterating this cause there's a, there's a lot of terms in the news or people saying it's not happening. So-and-so didn't do this or that. No one person that's trying to get, ele- to get elected really, unless they came up through the CDC or were in that field, uh, really had anything to do with the great work that's been happening, regardless of if it's an election year, right? You know what the election years affect? How much money the organizations do or don't get, and that's a whole other thing. And this is not a political podcast, so I'm not going to get into it. But that public health surveillance and epidemiologic investigations have been happening. So if you hear somebody say it's not happening, we need to do this or that, it is uh, public health laboratory testing. So again, we can test for what we know about COVID-19, different strain. They're developing tests now, or expanding it. So that's been funded. That's something that has been ongoing. Community preparedness. So I did an episode about public health personal preparedness. That's a big focus of that, right? For public health-focused stuff, and, and we'll touch on this as well for some of the at-risk folks for COVID-19, particularly older folks, that's letting folks know have enough medications for a couple of weeks, not just for right now. Have shelf-stable food, clean water, those kind of things. Um, you know, other other measures in their personal preparedness as well. Uh, information sharing. So systems that can alert all the employees that, Hey, this is happening, show up at this or that place, monthly tests of those. And then of course, media campaigns, public information officers, printed materials in many different languages. Um, and then the, the fifth of the top five funding for the FET program, medical countermeasure dispensing and distribution that's happening or going to happen. Right? So when I talk about those mass vaccination clinics, whether it's an annual tests of giving a regular flu shot, or it's the H1N1 outbreak where you're giving thousands of them regularly. Or like COVID-19, which is going to happen, we're going to screen uh, and test thousands of people. That's through medical countermeasure dispensing and distribution. You may not get a countermeasure, but the the point of dispensing model of come in, fill out something so we know you're not allergic or you won't, may not have a reaction go to this place, whether you drive to it in your car, because you can cone off an area and have people just drive through. You don't have to get out of your car, and then we'll probably see a mix of that. Or like in a school or another big place where you come in and walk through, um, and then you you know do your test, get some information, and head out. Uh, that's going to happen in mass uh, all over the place. What are the most common threats that we see environmental contamination, right? So groundwater contamination, uh, work through some of those investigations. The environmental health folks are just very good at that. You know, let's say there's a dry cleaner that's been leaking stuff out of the back of it for a while and it flows. There's a water table in the ground, right? It flows down, starts infecting people's well water. How do you get a solution to get them on city water if they can or whatever? Or however you can help solve the problem, keep people safe. Um, Severe weather, right? So that happens more often than a big COVID-19 style thing. A hurricane, tornado comes through. You know, there's public health issues there, right? So if the sewage system is down, that's a problem. Look at Katrina, Houston, areas where massive storms went through. They flood. Remember when they flood, they don't just flood nice clean water all over the place. Now there's dirty water with chemicals in it and biological stuff in it. Um, Pretty gross. Uh, So that's a huge public health emergency right there. So even all those places when the water recedes now they're covered in, you know, sewage laden water. Um, maybe there was a, you know, if you think about the the dump that you go to or the landfill, it's got a place for oil, right? That barrel. Imagine if a bunch of those now are in the water or other chemicals, gas stations are flooded. So a, a severe weather caused public health issue right now it's hot. Now there's mosquitoes everywhere, this whole cycle. And then of course, infectious disease outbreaks. So that is a huge, which I've you know touched on, a huge focus on the FEP program. There actually used to be a primary focus on pandemic influenza planning, and that's an, an annex that um, public health plans have, and if you, you know, all hazards is, is kind of the word of the day in, in emergency planning, including public health. And public health, they may delve a bit more into the disease-focused piece of having a point of dispensing plan, an epidemiological plan, an influenza plan. But then you also have annexes in your emergency operations plan, and that's the document that you create through the process of working with people um, for disease, out- disease outbreaks. And there's some variation for sure in what you do specifically, so you work with your epidemiologist. Just to get that guidance, um, but as far as how you pull people together, all hazards, right? So, focus on Virginia for the FEP program. So, for my fellow Virginians, um, and if you're not in Virginia and you're listening to this, uh, look it up. Look up on the CDC website, um, Public Health Emergency Preparedness Program, or FEP, and you can see a breakdown by state. I'm just going to go through Virginia. There's 119 local health departments for fiscal year 2019, over 14 million, almost $15 million was given to the state, which is pretty awesome. Um, What positions were funded? Epidemiologists, 41 of those, 17 of those laboratorians, eight educators, two health professionals, two CDC preparedness staff and 64 other positions, right? So again, every year that's looked at what's the threat uh, after COVID-19. Will that number go up from 14, almost 15 million? Could be. seems to be an uptick after this stuff happens. Um, So that's the FEP program. And again, that's the program that myself, epidemiologists, and and a few other folks were funded by whose whole focus is public health preparedness, shoring up training, supplies, everything else that's gotten a lot of folks ready for this COVID-19 that they are working on right now. The next program I want to talk about is HPP or hospital preparedness program. And this program developed through the public health security and bioterrorism preparedness and response act of 2002 from a lack of healthcare focus, uh, post nine 11, right? So there was big gaps identified from nine 11 after any big thing. And we learned a lot of that. And so in 02, this act was passed that said, Hey, we're going to fund this. We're going to get healthcare a little more resilient, a little more ready for big disasters that happen. And so in 2003, um, the Health Resource and Services Administration, or HRSA, uh, was developed as part of that, it expanded the, the program as part of that. And so that was because the money was good for each individual healthcare system, but each healthcare system didn't then work together with other healthcare systems. And just like any other business, everyone has their own brand, they compete for patients, for everything else. but what we needed to do was say, hey, everybody in the healthcare space, let's all work together to get ready for the next round of natural disaster, disease outbreak, mass casualty, whatever, and be in partnership instead of having our logos bump heads and stay in our silos. And that's just the reality of what was happening. So with the expansion with the HRSA, uh, the focus on improving bed and personnel surge capacity. So thinking about if we have to go from 200 to 700 beds because of an outbreak like COVID-19. How are we going to do that? Do we have the supplies? Do we have an offsite location? Can we change how we screen folks and let them in? Tons of considerations. So that's a focus that that folks that receive this money need to look at. And fortunately every year and uh, for the short time when I was the hospital preparedness guy, um, part of what I looked at is we're giving you this money. How are you spending it? How are you meeting these goals? So there are checks and balances, which is great. And the other thing is to look at decontamination isolation capability. So, um, a lot of high level hospitals and by high level, I mean kind of bigger level one trauma often, but, uh, research hospitals have bio, um, screening areas or isolation areas, even from the emergency room. So whether they think it's Ebola and that was a big spur for that, right? What was a, um, like a, a pathogens kind of unit was to make sure if EMS brought this patient that they suspected, Right, And they're all gowned up and masked up and everything. And they think they have whatever disease um, or, or virus that's spreading at the time. That you can get them with minimal to no exposure from anyone else to a space to isolate them and then work on them. So a huge focus there. Um, interoperable communications. So there are radio systems and, and that were developed so folks could talk directly hospital to hospital. That they could also get on their local public safety's radio channels. That they could also call each other, satellite phones, just all these interoperable, redundant, uh, communication systems to have many ways to talk to each other so they could coordinate again, like I mentioned for mass casualties for surge capacity. Um, a a great example of really good surge capacity and response was after the Boston Marathon bombing. The good thing is there's hospitals very close to where that happened. They even mentioned in some of the quotes from the docs, you know, we activated our incident command system. So they, they practiced it, right? So they were definitely uh, on the path of, of good preparedness there and they could talk to each other, right? So they, they were interoperable and they could communicate. Um, Part of that is bed tracking management. So developing systems, when you do mass casualty triage, there are paper tags. So when you're at the transport group supervisor that's saying, all right, send these two to this hospital and this one to that one, they are talking on the other end to a medical control that is typically your level one trauma that's, that's looking at all the hospital bed census in the area that says, okay, this place can take this many red or super critical patients, this many yellow or injured or walking wounded and this and that. And so there's a lot of communication and coordination going on and to make that happen, we have to have these systems in place and they have to be checked regularly and they are. So what else does the HPP focus on or the participating organizations? Uh, Hospital evacuation planning. What if we have to get out because there's an attack or really there's an exposure to a disease or say there's a fire or they lose power, right? It didn't have to be the scariest thing. It could be a practical thing. Um, let's say there's a, a car accident that hits the power pole that's going to, you know, or poles that's going to the hospital and sure they should have a generator and that kicks on. And let's say that generator, something happens to that, right? And this is not making it up. It happens. So what if you have to move patients quickly to another hospital because you have a, a large, uh, number of folks that are on life support that are critically ill and your facility now cannot handle them. So you need to be planning for that. Um, super morbid one is fatality management planning. And I participated in this quite a bit. And this is the literal planning of how you're going to take care of bodies, right? So how will you take custody of, store safely, um, be respectful, but move bodies of the deceased? right? So it's a very hard logistical solution. If you have, let's say a bunch of folks that are infected with a disease and now you have to store their bodies and you have to, that has to be cool, right? To keep the bodies at a temperature that they won't decompose. And again, gets way into it, right? And then to do that in mass, let's say what would be good for that is a big refrigerator truck, right? one you see going on the highway. So a a practical planning consideration that is part of this programmer to consider is who's going to want that truck back after you had bodies in it, if it was like a produce truck, right? So there are people that plan that stuff out that have, you know, contingency plans for that. But if you think about it, you know, that that is the level of planning that happens all the time from the nice you know, hey, everybody wash your hands through let's take this all the way to worst worst case scenario where we have, you know, a lot of deaths and we have to move bodies. And and you saw that uh, more in Africa with the Ebola where you see bodies and stuff. And that's part of the continued spread of infection, right, is exposure. So how do we stop that exposure if that were to happen? So fatality management and planning is a huge component of that um, and definitely shouldn't be overlooked because it's not as much on the front end kind of actionable but practically it's a huge consideration. So there's plenty of solutions for that from cooling blankets, like you use on living patients um, to small trailers that have racks for um, stretchers for bodies and whole bunch of other stuff. So that's a big consideration there. Uh, Emergency training, education drills and exercises, right? So all this stuff we've talked about that we actually do uh, you get good at that through some smaller response. Um, but for sure, training on diseases, training on the incident command system, training on working together and communication, um, drills and exercises, right? So a drill, you focus on one component thing, an exercise could be anything from, we're going to talk about it to We're going to get all the equipment out and all the people, and we're going to walk through this whole thing. So hospitals that get this money are required to do that. And they're required to work with their partners. So that pays off now when we're in COVID-19 style, um, outbreaks, right, is that we've already got these relationships, we're not establishing them now, we've already exercised this, so, okay, what do we do this time, what do we call this group and that group, and just kind of work through that, so, in, you know, in, as well as we were doing, and, and started to do, in, in 05, Katrina showed some more, you know, chinks in the armor, uh, and some changes are made to the program to say, hey, you know, let's, you know, in addition to working together, let's develop some official hospital coalitions. So now it's in place as part of the HPP program are hospital coalitions, which means these are like regional groups that get together of all the various organizations of a hospital plus public health plus fire and EMS to plan for practice and respond to all those things I talked about. So again, this should be comforting to know this happens behind the scenes that unless you're in this world, hardly anybody knows about it until something like COVID-19 happens and everyone goes, we're not ready. We didn't do anything, but there are thousands of people that are ready that practice this all the time that work together. And for the hospital preparedness program, let's go by the numbers for them. So this is nationally. There are 62 awardees, 476 healthcare coalitions, 31,000 coalition members, two hundred and fifty six million dollars in annual appropriation and since 2002 there's been five point nine billion dollars invested in hospital preparedness to establish coalitions that exist today that exercise that have caches of their own that work together that communicate that prepare for things like covid19 again a lot of money a lot of people doing great work have been at this for a long time so yes Diseases that become pandemics or or viruses or whatever it is are scary. Yes, we are concerned. Yes, there are things we can do. And as you see, as you listen to this, schools close, businesses can't, you know, close, um, events closed. But when it comes to it, just remember behind us in the public are these public health folks partnered with public safety, partnered with emergency management, with private sector that have been at this for a long time. Let's let them do their thing. Let's not freak out and spread misinformation. Everything between my personal experience and then the CDC's website with data, and it's updated constantly for things like this, is all available on the CDC.gov. It's all there. That's the real information. That's where you should get your information. So let's talk COVID-19 because, you know, it's on everyone's mind. Here's the latest as of Sunday, March 15th. Right. And, and some numbers, some data from the CDC will be from the 13th just because there's updates all the time and data as you get it in right from so many places has a little bit of lag. But first I'm going to cover some of the basics. So here are some guides per the CDC for COVID-19. The best way to prevent illness is to avoid being exposed to this virus. Go figure. Right. it spread respiratory person to person through droplets, just like other things don't go near people that are sick. If you're sick, stay home, cover your cough, wash your hands, right? How do you self protect? Wash your hands. Probably heard me say that before. Like I said, when I used to do presentations for folks on public health, I'd wash your hands on like every third slide because it's one of the greatest ways to stay healthy. If you use hand sanitizer, make sure it's 60% alcohol. If you're out and about touching doorknobs and handles and whatever else in public, don't then put your hands in your mouth, your eyes, your nose, right? Do those kind of things. If there's wipes in the store for the grocery carts, look for those, wipe the handles down, right? That'll also clean your hands as you're wiping them. So that's good stuff. For COVID-19, who is higher at risk? We mentioned this before. For this one, it's older adults, 60 and over seems to be the age. Deaths actually seem to be happening in folks even older than that, but 60 plus is the target age. Um, what can you do? A lot of the general preparedness things that I've talked about in the past that you can read on ready.gov stock up on supplies. And I don't mean make a run on toilet paper and ground meat because one ground meat's going to go bad, but people are doing it. It's goofy water, right? Get, you know, case of water. You should have that all the time medications. And this is where you got to be a little more proactive. If you're on regular medications, you're older, you have high blood pressure, thyroid, diabetes, whatever. Call your doctor plan to have a couple weeks of that, right? All the time you should have this and, and have that available. Have shelf-stable foods, right? Shelf-stable foods, not foods that are going to expire that need to be refrigerated. Cause let's say for some reason there's a power outage cause there's a windstorm, not even from COVID-19 cause COVID-19 doesn't call power outages. Um, you want something that's shelf-stable canned meats, canned foods. There's actually like noodles you can get that are shelf stable that you can just eat right out of there. Do we like nice microwaved warm noodles? Yes. But get things that, you know, last quite some time. Now, when you look at these foods, if you have health issues, particularly high blood pressure or something else, they have a lot of salt in them or they can. So continue to take your medications that you're supposed to, right? And look for shelf stable food that fits the diet that you should have. And there's tons of choices out there. Um, if you're older limit close contact, right? Other than to your family. And there's a thing in in diseases and outbreaks and investigations. And we look at who's sick, what about their family? What about their friends? And it's these circles that go from real small to bigger and bigger. So limit your close contact with other folks outside of your house, right? Avoid crowds. Um, Consider a food delivery service. Consider now is the time to reach out to your neighbors and ask for help. If you are someone that's able-bodied, that's younger, that is not at risk, you reach out and see if you can help your neighbors. That's what helps get us all through this. Um, but to that, you could you could consider food delivery. There's tons of food delivery services, and now they are probably hopping with business. Um, for sure, avoid cruises. If you've watched the news ever, whether there's COVID-19 or something else, you constantly hear about disease, sickness, something on a cruise. I'm not disparaging the cruise industry, but don't go on a cruise right now. If you're older, you're at risk. Um, that is close contact in a box on the ocean. So don't do that. Um, stay home, right? If there's an outbreak in your area, if there's COVID-19 cases in your area, like in your town, then for sure stay at home and then, you know, do the other things we talked about. Keep washing your hands, pay attention to the news without it kind of freaking you out, take a break from it. Um, and then, you know, get food delivery. If you have chronic medical issues, um, you're also at risk. So heart disease, diabetes, lung disease, your immune system's already fighting, take the same precautions I just mentioned, stay away from crowds, you know, limit your exposure. If you start feeling bad, um, call your physician, right? I wouldn't rush to the emergency room. Uh, again, rushing to the emergency room at a time like this is going to continue to overwhelm the healthcare system. That's already probably starting to get hammered by everybody that thinks they have COVID-19. So really, you know, also don't wait if you're feeling, you know, you have, just super horrible. You're having trouble breathing for something you would normally call or go to the ER for go. If you are sick, like you have a cold, don't rush to the ER, right? Call your primary care physician or the urgent care type places near you. Um, So what's happening in the United States and this is data as of the 13th, right? So a couple days ago you get data's coming in. There's always a bit of a lag. Um, There's variation between what the WHO has, what the CDC has, what the news says, I just pulled this from the CDC's website like two hours ago, okay? And it's March 15th, 2020. There are 1,629 cases in the United States. There have been 41 deaths reported through 47 jurisdictions, and those jurisdictions include 46 states and the District of Columbia. On the news, right before I started this uh, taping uh, recording, I guess I'm not using tape, um, I heard there were 49 states, but again... That's part of the variability. That's part of the information management, right? Who knows what their source is. Again, I pulled this directly from the CDC situation update for the U S that's the source. That should be everyone's source. How did folks get this? So 138 of those were exposed through travel, right? Out of 1,000, 629, 129 were exposed through close contact, Right? So I may have been at work or the grocery store, probably not the grocery store, but somewhere where I'm close to somebody, right, doing an activity where we're close together. Um, that's how they got that. And 1,362 are still under investigation. So why so many still under investigation? So I talked about in the history of the CDC, the ESI, local health departments, epidemiologists, nurses, emergency folks, doctors. It takes time. Think of an investigation for disease exposure or when you actually get it like a murder investigation, right? You have to go ask questions of the person that was involved. So in this case, the person that's sick, then you talk, you get their history. Where have you been? What have you done? Travel again? Travel history is a huge one in this screening, right? Then what about family and friends? Where have they gone and on down the line and you try and piece together the puzzle of this disease, right? So instead of solving a murder, you're solving, where did this thing you can't see, um, this disease, this, this, whatever you're exposed to, where did it come from? How do we stop it? Is someone still carrying out there? And so again, COVID-19 this is happening everywhere constantly. As of right now, there's 29 cases in Virginia reported, right? So from our Virginians, that's the latest from the CDC. That's the update. By the time this comes out, that will probably be out of date and, Again, I just urge everyone, go to the CDC's website, get your information from there. Um, In Virginia, in particular, they have a pretty good website. They also point back to the CDC, right? That's the guiding organization for what's happening right now in COVID-19. That's it. So what? Right? So what we care about COVID-19. So the history is kind of cool. So it's neat to learn about how, I think, and I hope comforting, that for decades the united states in particular has prepared for things like this it is why yes those are some significant numbers but compared to other countries not near as high right and i don't know if they'll get as high but we are very very well prepared so what is it outbreaks are not new in the united states and certainly not new for the great men and women of local state and federal public health every day Diseases are investigated. Refugees are given a chance at a new life and screened for disease. Families that may otherwise not get their prenatal vitamins or formula are fed and provided nutrition. Every single year, free flu vaccination clinics allow public health and their partners to exercise point of dispensing operations. If your health department advertises free flu shots, go get one from them. That is how you, as a citizen, as a listener, and and if you're not in America listening to this, see if if wherever you live does this too, that's how you let those folks practice what we are doing right now for COVID-19. The more people that go to their health department when they have these uh, mass vaccination clinics, the better prepared they will be. If they get more volume, they have to practice and adjust. The most we ever gave was 11 or 1200 in one day. We were hopping all day. It gave us the best practice we could ask for, and we were all exhausted, and we thank the public for that. Plus, that many more people got shots, right? So health departments do annual flu vaccination clinics. Go get one. I'm not getting into the vaccination debate. I'm saying if you want to help the public health system get better prepared, that's a great way to do it. Learn more about your public health department, right? It's not as sexy as you know, driving down a, a vehicle going, woo-woo. Right. It's not tactical pants, but they are the underpinning of why we're not all walking around with disease, why malaria was stopped in the southern United States, how we got polio vaccinations, how we greatly reduced exposure um, to uh, insecticides that we used to drive through neighborhoods, spraying around like uh, what makes America healthier and I'm not going to get into the obesity debate, but from a disease perspective, is strong public health, right? So trust in the people whose whole job day in and day out is to find the invisible threat, determine who may have been exposed, provide guidance on how to stop the threat, and establish screening and testing centers and stop the outbreak. That's all public health does. Let them do it. We will all get through COVID-19 through sensible measures like hand washing, staying home if you're sick, exercising and eating healthy, and by continuing to do what we would do every day to be as healthy as we can for ourselves and for those at risk. Thank you all very much for listening. I hope this was helpful. I wish all of us the best. Trust in your public health system. Trust in yourselves. Stay healthy. And Godspeed.